Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media presents the best of the history of being black. Today, I am so excited to be joined by today's guest, Dr. Cassie Turnipseed. She is the assistant professor of history at Jackson State University. So now you have some interesting passions, and one of them is going to be the focus of this particular episode. I'm curious about how you came into this as being a passion, and you are so well-read and well-written on the topic of cotton. Now, black folks tend to not want to talk about cotton because it has this connotation to us in the story of what we understand of our history of being black is don't talk to no black person about no cotton. And that is what you have researched and that is what most of your um, studies and a lot of your writings are about, cotton and the economics and how, how it affects us in America. I'm so curious how you initially got interested in that being a focus of study. That's such a good question to ask to um, go down this path uh, with me um, because the very first, well, let me just say, I'm from San Francisco, born and raised in San Francisco, California. I don't know a thing about picking cotton. I ain't never heard of, except for what you're going to wear, you know, <laughs> it being the fabric of our lives and everything. But I moved to Mississippi, which is where my parents are from, and everyone older than me is from Mississippi. And um, so I I had uh, just recently gotten a divorce. And so I was just wanting to sit down and shut up and just go somewhere where I could just do that. Right. So I came to Mississippi and started working with blues artists and working with the Greenville Delta Heritage and Fest, um, Blues Festival. And so in that process of learning about the culture, about the music, and, you know, Daddy always played B.B. and, you know, Albert King and all those other blues artists, but I had no understanding of the essence of blues and where it actually came from and, 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 and how it was extracted and even evoked in the cotton fields. So, you know, me and my little happy self, I went back home one year and took my father a bowl of cotton. And by this time, he had lost his eyesight, so he didn't see it coming. But my mother was standing on the other side of the room just shaking her head like, oh, Lord. <laughs> and then I, I know she didn't come over here with no cotton. <laughs> yeah, that was it. That was it. And so I put it in his hand. And so he's like, what did you, you give me? I said, Daddy, I brought you a gift from the Delta, from Mississippi. You know, it's, you know. then I was just happy because it was beautiful. It was a beautiful bulb that was well-preserved and just nice and clean and neat. And then so he was trying to feel it and see what it was. And he was all confused. He said, would you give me a sock? I said, no, Daddy, you don't know what that is. He said, no. I said, that's cotton. And then as soon as I said the word cotton, he screamed. He threw the cotton up in the ceiling. And then he turned in my direction and he cursed at me. And oh, he wow. said, don't you ever put that in my hands again. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What happened? And I wow. really was 
hurt because my father don't curse and he don't talk to me that way. He has never, you know, talk. so it hurt me so deeply. I was like, what's the matter? And then my mother was on the other side saying, that child just don't understand. So I wanted to understand. Why is it that you guys never talked about cotton? Why is it that you're so traumatized by this thing? And what is it, you know, that you're so, why are you still so mad at cotton? What did it do to you, you know? And boy, did I discover our truly horrendous past. But at the same time, what I discovered is the precious and the, and the real significance of cotton to this country. Not only to America, not only to um, um, Africa, because that's really where it began. We came over with the skill, the seeds, the gin, the technology, everything about cotton. We knew everything when we came over here as enslaved Africans. It is how Wall Street, the Wall Street in New York, was formed and developed is around who is going to um, market and exchange and, and hire out workers to go to these different regions and pick cotton, basically starting in the Gullah Geechee regions of South Carolina and how it was just transferred and transposed over to Mississippi. And it became the cotton kingdom of the world. And baby, let me tell you something. The story gets really, really deep and very painful. And But at the same time, cotton was the number one commodity and product in the world for nearly 200 years. All industries combined did not equate to the value and the profits that was made in cotton. You're listening to the best of the history of being black. Dr. Gloria J. Wilson, assistant professor of art and visual culture education at the University of Arizona. Welcome to the history of being black, Dr. Wilson. Hi, thank you so much, Eunice. Thanks for having me. That's what we're really going to focus on today, the social constructs mm-hmm. and, and how media has influenced the social constructs. Uh, I think about when you say your nephew thought you were white. Uh, for our listeners who don't see, you are a lighter complexion. <laughs> I remember my younger brother's uh, second grade teacher was a lighter complexion black woman, but he thought she was white. So when he would come home and tell my mom things that his teacher said about black kids, my mom went up there to have her head. And when she saw that it was a black woman, she had to say to my brother, this is a black woman. And so as a child, you don't really understand gradations of race. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And then at some point you, you are sort of um, given cues um, that something about you is different. Um, And so, you know, fast forward even to high school, my undergrad experience, my grad school experience, and probably an experience that many black people um, can identify with is being the only one or one of few, you know, in a room with white people. And so that is a very distinct experience um, that one that one thinks about, you know, when they're in these rooms, you know, and, and maybe we don't have the vocabulary for, for why we're feeling the way that we're feeling other than we know that we're different. Um, and everybody's experience, you know, up to the point where they understand that there's difference. Um, it differs and it varies. But what I've understood at this point, you know, in, in the work that I've done is that oftentimes we don't have the vocabulary in order to articulate what we may be feeling at the time, you know, and even the vocabulary to tease out 
um, what racial identity is, what blackness is. Um, and even though even though it is a construct that was created by um, those who both set, <laughs> who are both settler colonialists of the USA um, and who have colonized other um, countries and continents, um, we we are are living out um, the everyday experiences of trauma and violence associated with how people understand race. And, and you know, that is what is. <laughs> so let me ask you from the curiosity you have from your personal experience to uh, becoming uh, in academia and a, a teacher, a professor in this, do you feel like you have a better grasp on it now or does it keep changing? <laughs> It does. It seems like it's such a fluid idea when we talk about the construct of race. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I do feel like I have vocabulary um, and I do feel like I have um, some analytical tools to help sort of um, explain what might be happening um, in, for instance, in the visual culture that we live in, you know, sort, sort of the things that we see every day. And um, a lot of times I like to start with the example of Birth of a Nation. So the film Birth of a Nation right. <laughs> that um, was produced, I believe, in 1915 um, and was first shown in the White House. OK. Wow. And so <laughs> and so what people don't you know, don't know, and why would they know, really, um, is that um, Birth of a Nation was more or less um, a genius production of the time. So when we're thinking about technical te technology and what was happening in the world of media, Birth of a Nation was sort of groundbreaking in the way of its technological um uh, modality. Okay. And so, but what people were not talking about is how highly racist. Right. Well, film. talk to us about that. Those of us who have not seen that version of Birth of a Nation, like even when you talk about the technical modality, like just break that down for us as a starting point of Black people portrayals in America. Sure, absolutely. And so while I'm not a film, I'm not a film expert by any means. And so let me go ahead and contextualize my area of study um, by saying that I am I am um, educated as an art, um, an art teacher first, because I taught in public schools prior to moving into higher ed. And so I was trained as an art teacher um, and trained in the more traditional modes of expression. So like painting and drawing and sculpture and ceramics and things like that. But I always had an interest in pop culture and also textiles and garment making, which is kind of, you know, a different direction, but it, it all comes together at some point and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about it. Um, but so in in the work that I do now, it's situated in art education, which um, isn't a very interdisciplinary field. Um, but essentially what I do is I prepare others to go out and teach in the field of art and visual culture education. And so that can look any number of ways. Um, most times people 
automatically think, oh, it's just painting and, and ceramics and photography. Um, but there is sort of um, a genre, an area of the art world um, and artists that feel that they have a political responsibility to right. speak to social issues, you know, to address the social issues. And so while technical skill is cool and, and might help you advance, you know, um, a sort of a social concern, um, the area that I focus on um, is through a cultural studies lens, okay? And so um, cultural studies um, broadly asks what, what are the ways that the world um, is classified and organized? You know, so we're thinking about the world broadly as culture. Um, and so I, I enjoy pop culture. I enjoy my dose of reality TV. Oh, I wow. Enjoy- <laughs> okay. We're definitely going to get there. We're definitely going to get to reality TV. We're definitely going to get there. I enjoy it all. And so, you know, looping back around to your question about birth of a nation, that, that is my entry point into my discussion within my classroom about, um, how racial constructions happened in our visually mediated world. You're listening to the best of the history of being black. Today's episode, we have a dear friend of mine, longtime colleague and friend, and I'm going to just say his name. I didn't want to read your bio because when I read people's bios, I never know what you're most proud of. So if you were to meet me in the elevator, why would, why would I want to know you? Tell me a little bit about yourself, Roy S. Johnson. I know that you are very well versed in the talk of black folks, particularly when black folks start talking about Black Wall Street. First question for you is, do you think black folks talk about Black Wall Street enough? Absolutely not, because we've got to catch up for about 40 years of not talking about Black Wall Street. And what's interesting about Black Wall Street today is it's kind of this thing. It's an entity. Some people talk about it as if this this like Disneyland. You know, it's a, it's a place that, you know, we want to try to recreate that represents this entity that happened almost 100 years ago. But Black Wall Street came out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, for those who don't know, when black folks were given property on the other side of the tracks in this new oil-rich area called Tulsa, Oklahoma. And between the 1900s and the early early part of the 1920s, took that opportunity to create a self-sustaining community in which African-Americans essentially owned everything, uh, owned homes, homes, owned the stores, owned the transportation system. And outside of Harlem, it was the most thriving economic Black-owned community in the nation, which is where it got the name Black Wall Street. So it was a place uh, where people lived and, and, and loved and went out at night. There were nightclubs, movie theaters, restaurants, grocery stores, barbershops, of course. We can't have our, our neighborhood without the barbershop and the beauty shop. But it was it was a an all-encompassing community that for me, and I, I grew up right in the last days of it, not in the 1920s, uh, but as it was existing and, and exiting in the 1950s, but it was really, it was, it was all about black folks. And so it was really a critical and vital part of our history. So I think a lot of people who are not familiar with Black Wall Street, especially as you are, because you grew up in that area. And as you said, we're kind of more intimately in, um, uh, aware of it. Uh, it wasn't taught in our school books that, you know, we had sustaining and sustainable black communities. Uh, we pretty much what we were taught were slaves, wheezes free, civil rights. And so I'm curious. 
about yeah like that's it there there's no story of any thriving communities any self-sustained communities and how those communities ended so when you talk about black wall street obviously i have to ask you why don't we know about black wall street what happened there in tulsa um and and how you see it showing back up amazingly enough in today's history well we don't know about it for a couple of reasons one is simply because nobody talked about it not even in tulsa and one of the reasons they didn't talk about it was because of the 1921 race massacre. Uh, this is the 100th anniversary of that. And for many, many years, it was called a race riot until uh, many of us changed that narrative. He said it wasn't a riot when white people came across the tracks and killed and slaughtered up to 300 black people. That's a massacre. And the reason we didn't hear about it is because there was a conspiracy of silence in Tulsa by both blacks and whites that went on for decades. I have some uh, elders in Tulsa who tell me that when they were kids and tried to ask about it, they were told, don't ask about that. Black folks didn't talk about it because we were embarrassed by it, embarrassed by the fact that so many people were killed uh, and no one was ever prosecuted for that. Whites, who now were the uh, descendants of the people who actually committed the, the crime, were embarrassed to talk about it for some of the same reasons. So as I was growing up, I was born in 1956, I never heard of the massacre until I became an adult. No one talked about it. It was not, not only was it not taught, it was not discussed. So part of why we don't know our history is certainly because our educational system in this country has not ever taught the full breadth of our history. Not only why we have Black History Month, but we, it should be all year round just to start filling up the gaps. But in specifically in terms of Black Wall Street and the race massacre, we don't know about it because nobody talked about it for almost half a century. Uh, and so we're just beginning to catch up. It's been gratifying for me over the last, I would say, 20 to 25 years for it to be reclaimed, for it to be uh, reintroduced and re branded as a race massacre as opposed to riot. Now you still find pockets of people that have never heard of it. But because of documentaries, uh, the last survivors just died in the last few years. And so there were discussions with them. They were they were honoring them. Uh, the fact that the state of Oklahoma two years ago agreed to make a curriculum around Black Wall Street and the massacre was, was really heartening for me. I just read a story today where the Tulsa school system, where I grew up, is introducing a full curriculum from kindergarten through high school where kids will be introduced to Black Wall Street and the massacre on the level that they're able to see it. So we're finally, you know, 60 years later uh, from the last days of Black Wall Street, finally introducing it into the curriculum. And I'm heartened the kids uh, growing up there and, and other places as well uh, will now be able to learn about their history, whether they're black, white or whatever. That is a significant part of Tulsa's history. You're listening to the best of the history of being black. We are so fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Eden Renee Hayes. She's the owner of Pluralism Solutions, LLC, and is also the director of the Davis Center, which is a multicultural center at Williams College. But she has so much um, involvement and plays such a critical role in advancing the engagement of, when you say complex issues, all you have to do is say race, but it goes so many different levels of identity, bias, equity, inclusion, and everything that affects any and everything in our lives. So we're going to try to talk about some of that. So thank 
thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the history of being black. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you this. In in the fact that you have made a career in research, unconscious bias, institutionalized racism, identity crisis, equity, you've been studying this and have made a, a, a career of it. What have you thought about just this last year that everyone else is trying to have these new awakenings? Well, it's a long time coming. Obviously, that that's I think that's the biggest thing. It's it's as if like Rodney King never happened. It's as if like when Rodney King was happening, that it wasn't happening well before then. It's as if Jim Crow didn't happen. It's just like, hello, people. We've been around for a long time. You've like opened up your institution and said we want to diversify. And now you're getting to like, okay, wait a minute. We can't just have people like we have to do something within the institutions that we have in order to make it a welcoming environment. And that's the reason why we don't have enough diversity. And that's the reason why we need to pay more attention to to what's going on. So it's definitely great that people are paying more attention now. But where, where were you before? Where were you before I was born? And, and that's the question is, is like, is it a sprint versus a marathon? You mentioned those names. And like you said, you can mention 10,000 more names. It's the hot thing. And then we move on and we really haven't moved anywhere. Do you think we've moved somewhere this time? I do think that people are paying more attention now, which is is it's excellent people paying, paying more attention, definitely. Um, but when we're thinking about this, we also have to consider that so many people have been experiencing this for a really long time, that there are pioneers that have paved the way for, for me, for you, for so many others. And we have to honor exactly what they went through and honor the things that they've been, uh, that they experienced and everything like on Juneteenth, I sent out a message about like, look at all my privileges you know, to to my family members, to my best friends. I'm not so big on the Facebook front. Um, but basically, I wanted to make obvious that I I understand what came before me, that there has progression that has been made. We still have a long way to go. And that's the difficult part is recognizing that it's not just this moment right now. It's that we still have hope on the horizon to do even better, to have to recognize the fact that so many different people have privileges privileges. And instead of saying, whoa, there's privilege here. Um, let's let's unpack that. And let's think about that. They're, they're hoarding and saying, oh, no, 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 I need to keep it as if we can't be free for all when it comes to privilege. Like no one's trying to take away your privilege. We're just trying to say we all deserve the same thing, too. And when you use the word privilege, I think about how defensive some white people get when you offer the concept of white privilege. But like you said, as black people today, we have so many privileges and so many more than our ancestors and predecessors had. So how do we balance this thing, this um, this comeback to when we do say, hey, something needs to change and the privilege, the white privilege says, look at all these privileges you have. I mean, yeah, it's I, true, but it's still a problem. It is. It is. I had to actually learn that because as a black woman, uh, very, very proud to be a black woman and one who is teaching about diversity, equity, inclusion to predominantly white students and white audiences, considering the multiple sectors that I'm in, it's not just higher ed. It's it's a uh, superintendents at K-12 and it's also hospitals. And like there's so many different it's the film industry. Like I've, I've gotten myself into a lot of different sectors and in that I I had to figure out how is it that I 
teach about privilege, when people are looking at me and what they see is black women. And both of those are intersectional demographics that are both marginalized. I have to call out all of my other privileges to help people to understand that we're all privileged. And I'm not trying to say you're privileged and you're at fault. That's that's never the intent of what's happening. What we're trying to do is push a bit of an envelope to get people a little bit uncomfortable because in, in, in that discomfort, that's where change happens. That's where we start thinking. That's where we start growing. So that's where we need, also need to understand everybody has privilege. And thinking about that, that means that I have privilege too. You have privilege too. Anybody listening to this, there is privilege somewhere within your demographics where the world is more set up for you to be able to continue along with being able to be a member of that particular demographic. So that is usually what helps with trying to teach about white privilege specifically and getting more white people to recognize because then they see, oh, if this is everybody, it's not just white privilege. It's privilege of being cis, that uh, the medical community labeled me as female. And I also identify with being female. That's part of me. It's the privilege of my gender expression. I am a woman who likes to wear ties. I may not be wearing one right now, but I know where to buy one if I go to the store. I know that they are gendered as male, but I like to wear ties. I think they're cool and I think I look cool in, so I'm going to wear it. And that doesn't really affect my ideas as to who I am as a woman. I don't feel like I'm gender bending when I do it. Sometimes my students say that I am just like, bro, am I really? Or am I wearing a tie? You're wearing like when a it tie. comes to it, I'm, we- I'm kind of just wearing a tie. Like I, I look cool and I'm going to rock it. So when it comes to that, it's it's calling out all these other privileges. Like I may not have been born middle class. I was raised by a single mother. Like so, my sense of being middle class at growing up was rocky. So, but now I I have a PhD. I have a solid job. I got an LLC on the side. With having all of that, it means I am a lot more solidly middle class. That is a privilege. I am financially stable. When my daughter says, I want this, I have the choice of being able to get it to her or not. And saying like, I don't know, how was the last time you cleaned your room? <laughs> right. Right. You know, or rather than saying, I'm sorry, mommy can't afford that right now. Like I grew up with, we can't afford that. And now I'm just like, well, do I give it to her or do I not? Like, right. what do I want her to grow up with? That's where privilege lies. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott, edited by Ken Johnson, executive producers Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean Old Lion production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.